All right, Psalm number 35. Psalm 35. Well, the Bible is sometimes a difficult book. Did you know that? And if you thought it was difficult trying to understand it, just as in your daily reading, you ought to try to stand up here sometime and uh, try to interpret Scripture and apply Scripture to the lives and all that of modern 21st century American Christians. Uh, it's a big challenge. And Psalm 35 is one of those challenging passages. Um, there are some portions of the Bible that are more problematic for some people than others. And out of all the 150 Psalms, the most troubling or the most problematic portion of the book of Psalms is the imprecatory Psalms. In fact, Dr. Boyce, in his notes on Psalm 35, says that he could not find one single Christian hymn that was inspired by the 35th Psalm. Some hymns, if you study hymnology, uh, and usually in your hymnal, in the back it will have a list of scripture references for each hymn. And you'll find that some of the hymns that we sing have been inspired by several different psalms. Uh, there is not, in my estimation and knowledge, now maybe Miss Elaine could help me out and find a hymn that's been inspired by the 35th Psalm, but I don't know that there is one. And the reason why is because Psalm 35 belongs to a rather controversial grouping of psalms. Psalm 35 is one of the imprecatory psalms. Now, an imprecation, an imprecation literally means a curse. And so, in these imprecatory psalms, the psalmist calls out to God for God to pour out curses and judgments upon the enemies of God. Now, that may not seem to be that big of a deal, maybe for you or for others, but I can tell you this much. I'm going to show you why the psalms of imprecation have been so controversial in the history of the Christian church. And in fact, there are some people, I'll not mention their names, but great teachers in the yesteryear, great Bible teachers actually, that did not believe that the imprecatory psalms should be part of Holy Scripture. And here's why. I'm going to quote for you two verses from the New Testament. That's actually three verses from the New Testament. And I'm going to show you why there is such a contrast and controversy about these psalms of imprecation. The first one is Matthew chapter 5, 44 and 45. This is Jesus speaking, and he said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus clearly says, love your enemies. You've all heard that before. How many people have ever heard the teaching of Christ to love your enemies? Oh, yeah, everybody in here. Sure. And that's true. It, those 
words were true because they fell from the lips of the Son of God Himself, Christ Jesus the Lord. I also want to quote to you another great passage of Scripture, Matthew, or excuse me, Luke chapter 23, verse 34. This is the some of the dying words of Jesus Christ on crucifixion day. The Bible said, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So here you have two great teachings of Jesus Christ. Love your enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And for the full weight of the words of Christ in Luke chapter 23, you have to go back and read the whole chapter because literally as Christ's persecutors and tormentors are beating the flesh off of his back and plaiting a crown of thorns on his head and piercing him with... Uh, nails on the cross, Christ literally cries out and says of his persecutors, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And this is a rather radical thing for the Lord to say. And it still provokes a lot of controversy even in our day. This sort of radical forgiveness to love your enemy is a radical kind of love. And so now you have these two great teachings of Christ. The teaching of love your enemy and the teaching of forgive your enemies. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter says, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times. He thought that he was a little bit more spiritual than the rabbis who wrote the great Talmud. But uh, Jesus says, no, I say unto you 70 times seven. And it's an almost an innumerable amount of times we're to be extending forgiveness uh, to people who offend us. And so this is no isolated thing. These are not cherry-picked passages. Um, these are not passages that are being taken out of context. Now what I want you to do is I want you to notice, I'm going to read for you again Psalm 35, verses 4 through 8. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him, let him fall into it to his destruction. Now, Psalm 35 is a prayer of David to God, and it's a prayer of imprecation. It is a prayer of cursing upon the enemies of God. So, y'all in here are pretty smart. You may not think you are, but do you see that you have a, what appears to be a slight contradiction? Because here you have David, the king of Israel in the Old Testament, the great, 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 great grandpa of the Lord Jesus Christ, praying that God would destroy his enemies. But then you have Jesus Christ in the New Testament saying, love your enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so here it is. As we live in the tension between the words of Christ to love your enemies in the New Testament and the word of God in the Old Testament for God's enemies to have destruction come upon them when they do not know it. Therefore, may we learn how to use the imprecatory psalms in our own relationship with God, prayer life, 
and in our relationship with the world around us. I'll say that again. As we live in the tension between the words of Christ to love our enemies in the New Testament and the word of God in the Old Testament for God's enemies to have destruction come upon him when he does not know it, therefore may we learn how to use the imprecatory Psalms in our own relationship with God and in our relationship with the world around us. What we're going to try to do, make a feeble attempt this morning to try to reconcile these Old and New Testament passages together and out of that come up with several guiding principles of how we can use psalms and prayers of imprecation in our own lives in relationship with God and especially in our prayer life. All right? As we consider Psalm 35, it is important to keep several principles in mind before we seek to interpret and make application of this great passage of Scripture. I have basically two points for you, all right? And then I have a bunch of takeaways at the end. So point number one is seeking a balanced approach. Seeking a balanced approach. Point number two is simply a twofold profound imagery. A twofold imagery. Fairly simple, at least it would seem. <laughs> I assure you folks that uh, some passages of the Bible, you remember what Peter said at the end of his letter, First Peter, he said, some things which were written by our brother Paul are hard to be understood. And you could also say that about some of the things that are written in the Psalms and almost every other book of the Bible. There are things that are hard to be understood. But with the help of the Lord this morning, I believe we can... Uh, come to an understanding of these great truths of Psalm 35. Seeking a balanced approach, I have seven principles to help guide our interpretation and application of these psalms or prayers of cursing against the enemies of God. All right? Number one. Now, I'm going to give you a quote from one of my seminary uh, instructors, Dr. Kevin Van Hoosers, extremely brilliant individual. And he said this, he said, Scripture is full of tensions and heresies are born when we take it upon ourselves to relieve those tensions. He said, Scripture is filled with tensions. Heresies are born when we take it upon ourselves to relieve those tensions. There is a reason why there is tension in Scripture. There's a reason why God is sovereign and human beings are responsible. And it seems like sometimes those two things are pulling against one another. All right? The way that I've reconciled it in my own life and ministry is when I come upon passages that teach God is sovereign to teach that God is sovereign. But then when I come upon passages of Scripture that teach that human beings are responsible for their decisions, that I teach that human beings are responsible for their decisions. And I leave the tensions in place. I don't try to relieve the tensions. And let me show you one of the dangerous things about interpreting the imprecatory psalms when we try to relieve those tensions. Some people, and I have it written in my notes this way, be careful with trying to relieve the tension between the word of Christ in the New Testament and the word of God in the Old Testament by saying that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, but the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy and grace. Y'all understand that? If you say that, and I'm going to show you why that's not true, 
if you say that the reason why David could pray prayers of cursings against the enemies of God is because God is a God of wrath and judgment in the Old Testament, but Christ is a God of mercy and grace in the New Testament, there is a sliver of truth in that. But by saying that, what you have done is you have created more tensions. You have created more problems. We create more problems when we try to cross purposes with the Godhead. If we say that God's operation amongst humanity was different in the Old Testament than it was in the New Testament, what you have done is you have created two gods rather than one God in three persons. Or is everybody tracking this so far? I told you this was a difficult study, so bear with me and pray for me. Be very careful with making two gods in the Bible. There's only one God revealed in three persons. That's just the start of the problems that occur when we say the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Secondly, David was not personally vindictive in his imprecatory praying. In fact, you may not find a more compassionate and forgiving man in all the Old Testament than David. And I want to show you one of the great examples of David's compassion and his forgiveness, and it's in his relationship with Saul. 1 Samuel, I'll quote it for you. You can write it down and look at it later. 1 Samuel 24, 9 and 10. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Here you had Saul chasing David, trying to murder him. Over and over and over again. And David has to run and hide. And David is in the cave and he has an opportunity to kill Saul. But David does not do that. David says, Saul, I'm not going to harm you because you are God's anointed. And I will suggest to you that you will not find a more compassionate and forgiving character in all the Old Testament than David. And that way, David prefigures Christ. In David's in precatory prayers, you will find no hint of personal vindictiveness. David did not have a chip on his shoulder against his enemies. David did not have an axe to grind. Thirdly, David claims to be completely innocent from any wrongdoing against his enemies. Three times in Psalm 35, David says that they're persecuting me without a cause. Notice it in the Bible, please. <clears throat> First time, he says it twice in verse 7. For without cause they hid their net for me, without cause they dug a pit for my life. Notice again in verse 19 of Psalm 35. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, in verse 20. He says that they're hating me, they're persecuting me without cause. It's not that he had been wrong. See, you have to be careful with using imprecatory psalms in your own life because we may not be free of hypocrisy. 
We may not be free of... See, listen, it's not that David was wrong, but that David had done something wrong and these people were persecuting him. It's that David had done nothing wrong and that they are still persecuting him. What we're doing is slowly unpacking Psalm 35. Fourthly, although it may seem on the surface that the tone and message of the New Testament is different than that of the Old Testament... The Old and New Testament are actually far more similar than what we realize. In the New Testament book of Revelation, we have the righteous rejoicing over the fall of mystical Babylon. I want to quote two verses from Revelation for you. It's Revelation 18 and verse 20 and Revelation 19 and verse 3. Listen to what the Bible says. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then in Psalm, uh, Revelation 19 and verse 3, the host of heaven actually rejoiced that, quote, the smoke from her goes up forever and forever. Also notice the woes that Christ pronounces upon the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew chapter 23. So I'm, I've given you three key passages from the New Testament that show that imprecatory cursings upon the enemies of God were in vogue and very much happening in the New Testament just like they were in the Old Testament. Are you all tracking that? So do you see now that the God of the Old Testament isn't as different as the God of the New Testament as what it would seem? What's so fascinating about the passage in Revelation is that when God finally judges mystical Babylon, I don't have time to go into all this, the Bible says that when God cast this false religious system into the lake of fire for an eternity, that the saints of God, apostles and prophets are standing by watching God toss an innumerable throng of human beings who have rejected the gospel into a lake of fire and brimstone. And the Bible imagery that God gives is that the saints are clapping while God does that. Very strong stuff, folks. Very strong, and that's, that's in the New Testament, all right? And again, Matthew chapter 23, I would suggest, is some of the strongest cursing found anywhere in the Bible against the enemies of God. That's where Jesus really confronts the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, whitewashed sepulchers full of dead man's bones. Uh, very, very powerful uh, sermon from the Lord Jesus Christ. Number five, remember that David is not writing as a mere private citizen, but rather David is the chief justice of the nation of Israel. In other words, you and I in the New Testament era, we're not tasked like David was with being a judge listening to court cases David has to execute justice and judgment righteously. He has to do the right thing. If someone's guilty, he has to pronounce guilt on them. If they're innocent, he has to pronounce innocence on them. David acts as a judge over all the nation of Israel. You and I are not judges like David was in the sense that we wear the robe and we bang a gavel on the uh, desk of God's justice system like David did. David was a literal judge in Israel and he was doing his job as he's executing justice and judgment upon the enemies of God and those who break the law. But, number six, as private citizens in God's kingdom, we are to earnestly pray for God's justice to be manifested here on the earth. 
Just because you and I don't wear a judge's robe and carry a gavel, that doesn't mean that we're not to be praying for God's justice to be manifested. We are to be praying for that. And the imprecatory psalms give words to our prayers. Are you all tracking that? So just because we're not the chief justice of Israel, we are judges in the sense that we are to be discerning and praying that God would execute justice and where injustice is prevailing. Finally, perhaps most importantly, Always remember our own sin and hypocrisy as fallen people in a fallen world. Here's the question. Therefore, how can Christians in contemporary churches pray imprecatory prayers? How can we use psalms of imprecation in our own prayer life, in our own ministry, and our own dealings with the world, and our relationship with God? Here it is. A supernatural balance occurs in our lives when we know God and in His holiness and justice, but we also know our own sinful sin nature. I'll say that again. A supernatural balance occurs in our lives when we know both God and His holiness and our sinfulness. On the one hand, we earnestly desire God to defeat evil in the world, but on the other hand, we are aware, aware of our own worldly sinfulness. You have to be very careful when you pray against the enemies of God that you don't do that in a self-righteous way. You don't pray against your enemies. You pray against God's enemies. Your enemies may not be God's enemies, but God's enemies are always your enemies. I'll say that again. Your, just because somebody has wronged you, that doesn't mean that they have necessarily wronged God. Or you think that they've wronged you. You're angry, bitter, upset, holding a grudge over something that someone did, and you start praying psalms of imprecation against them, folks. Be very, very careful. Do you remember what James and John told the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, Lord, call down fire on them that are seeking to persecute us and reject our message. And Jesus said, you didn't know what spirit you were of. That's not what I'm all about. Never forget, folks, that some of the people that was standing on crucifixion day saying crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, several weeks later were going to fall down on their knees and confess him as Lord at Pentecost. Think about that. We'll talk about that as we move on. When we have this supernatural balance in our lives, our own sinfulness and God's holiness and hatred for sin, when we're not praying in arrogant self-righteousness, we're allowed to use the imprecatory psalms like David did. David had that balance. He was keenly aware of his own sinfulness. He was also keenly aware of God's holiness. The judge of all the earth most certainly will do right. So here's the twofold imagery beginning in the first verse. Look at this. <clears throat> contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. The word contend is a legal term. And what David is asking God to do and be in his life when he says, Lord, contend for me. He says, Lord, I want you to be my defense attorney in the court of law. I want you to stand up, Lord, and argue my case against the prosecutors 
against the judges of this world that are passing unrighteous judgment on me. Contend for me, O Lord. But then notice the second part of the verse. Fight against those who fight against me. Here is the twofold imagery found in the very first verse of Psalm 35. A champion on the battlefield and an advocate in the court of law. We're going to talk about this. This is the two things. These are the two things that David asked God to be for him. I'm going to show you why he asked that here in just a moment. These two images, a champion on the battlefield and a defense attorney or an advocate in the court of law, this is what weaves the entire psalm together. These two images will be further expanded upon all throughout the rest of the psalm. A champion on the battlefield is expounded in verses 4 through 10. But he really lays the groundwork in verses 2 and 3. Let's read verses 2 and 3 together. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. God, David says to God, Lord, suit up for battle. These people are trying to wage a war against Israel. These people are taking me to the international military court. See, David at some point had made a military treaty of peace with some of the opposing nations. And those kings with whom David had a treaty, now they're accusing David of breaking that treaty. And that's the context of Psalm 35. Notice when, God, when David invokes God to be his champion on the battlefield in verses 4 through 10, I want to highlight verses 7 and 8. He, God is a God who is a champion of poetic justice. God is champion of poetic justice. Let me show you what I mean, verses 7 and 8. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. David prays that the enemies of God would fall victim to their own sinful devices. This is not an inappropriate prayer at all. Let me give you how to pray a to the champion on the battlefield for poetic justice to be manifested in our lives. Here it is. Lord, let the violent meet a violent end. Lord, may the crafty be deceived in their craftiness. Let liars be lied to and let cheaters be cheated. The devices that they are setting to try to thwart God and His purposes, let those own devices fall back on their own heads. This is an example of poetic justice. And this is one of the ways in which God delights in defeating His enemies. God delights in defeating His enemies through poetic justice. For further details, study the book of Esther. <laughs> and all that happened there with Mordecai and Haman. I want you to notice with me verses 5 and 6. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. 
Who is this angel of the Lord? David talks about him twice, doesn't he? And also, you remember, we met the angel of the Lord back in Psalm 34. I wonder who this angel of the Lord could be. Before I tell you, here are two things that you need to be made aware of. While Jesus Christ, as we know him in the New Testament, does not appear in the Old Testament like he does in the New Testament, he nevertheless appears. And what God was teaching the Jewish people in the Old Testament was that Yahweh, or the God of Israel, has an invisible presence, but he also has a visible presence. Let me give you an interesting passage of Scripture. Notice in Genesis 18, verses 1 through 3, there are three angels that appear to Abraham, but one of them Abraham calls Lord, Adonai. Adonai. So one of these angels had the appearance of a man, but Abraham says that this particular angel was the Lord. Hint, hint. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> I wonder who that could have been, right? This is what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus appears occasionally in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, a special messenger, a special guide, a special warrior for the nation of Israel. And the angel of the Lord is called Lord in the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter number 18. There's a lot more I'd love to say about that, but I got to keep going. Secondly, we have the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua 5, 13 through 15. I'll read it for you. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for, or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And so did Joshua. Who else one time said, take off your sandals from your feet for you're standing on holy ground? It was God when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. So now you have this commander of the Lord's army with his sword drawn as the Israelites are about to march over the Jordan and take the seven cities of the Canaanites and the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army with his sword drawn, ready to do battle on behalf of the nation of Israel, has come to reveal himself to Yeshua, Joshua. Joshua is the Old Testament name for Jesus. Did you know that? Isn't that wonderful? And so here you have pre-incarnate. Uh, the proper term, and please don't uh, get too nervous when I use big words. I try to define them for you. It's called a Christophany. Huh? You know I knew big words like that, did you? A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And that's what you have. Christ appearing. Now... The angel of the Lord, which David says will do battle for him, or David prays that God would send the angel of the Lord, this is Christ himself. 
How does that affect our lives? Well, we are at war too, aren't we? We are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have great spiritual enemies that dwell in heavenly places. I want to read for you Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. This is the words of Paul. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespass by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them and him. This is a very powerful passage. I want to tell you what it means. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, when the Roman army would defeat an opposing nation, the Romans would capture the king and the generals of the army of their opposing force, and they would put them in cages. And they would bring these kings and these generals and these mighty warriors whom they conquered. They'd put them in cages and they would have a triumphal procession through the streets of Rome. And all the Roman citizens would be throwing uh, rotten uh, sort of vegetables and rotten eggs and cursing these uh, defeated military foes. And did you know what? That's what Paul says that Jesus done for us whenever he died and rose again on the cross. The enemies of God and the enemies that we have, Satan and his dark enemies, they have been led through a triumphal procession and the saints of God one day are going to throw rotten tomatoes at them and curse the enemies of God just like they did in the ancient streets of Rome when Caesar and the great Roman army conquered an opposing nation. Can you imagine what that would be like? Satan cowering? Oh, wow, I can't wait. And did you know that Paul doesn't say that day's coming, but he said that day has already been here. At the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, all of our enemies were defeated. And when you find yourself being persecuted by your dark emissaries, the devil and his forces, you can call out to the champion of your battlefield, the angel of the Lord, who is Christ Jesus. Call on him. He will help you. And claim these precious promises by faith. Believe God. Now, I don't have a lot of time left, but I want to show you just some interesting things about the advocate in the courtroom imagery. Let's read Psalm 35, 11 through 18. I'll read quickly if you can follow along quickly. Malicious witnesses rise up they ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft, but I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with my head bowed on my chest. I went about as though, as I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments for his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me, wretches whom I did not know, tore at me without ceasing like profane mockers at a feast they gnash at me with their teeth how long O lord will you look on rescue me from their destruction my precious life from the lions i will thank you and the great congregation and the mighty throng i will praise you david says lord i need you to be my defense attorney i'm going to read you this 
Dr. Craigie suggests David had formed an inter international military treaty with foreign kings. And while the relationship was good at first, eventually things turned sour after this foreign king accused David of breaking the treaty. Even though David was innocent of the charges, David finds himself in an international court falsely accused with the threat of war overshadowing the nation of Israel. Think about this. Think about the weight. If what they're saying is true, then David and Israel have broken their word. And the Bible said in the law, you shall not bear false witness. This is a serious matter. And the whole nation is about ready to go to war, perhaps, with other surrounding nations because of these false accusations with these, that these have made against David. David cries out to the Lord to be his advocate in this international court. Perhaps the worst kind of betrayal is by those whom we tried to help. Look at verses 12 and 14. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. Verse 14, I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother as one who laments his mother. David said, I cared about these people. I did. It wasn't just a relationship. I viewed these people as my kinfolk. I viewed them as my family. I prayed for them when they were sick. I loved them. I did everything I could to try to keep the treaty. And David was betrayed. Cry out to the Lord when you are betrayed by those whom you tried to help. Also cry out to the Lord like David when we are, re when we are returned evil for good. Have you ever had that happen to you? Done good to people, tried to help them, but they returned evil to your good? When you find yourself in that terrible predicament, cry out to the Lord, your advocate. Thirdly, when we suffer defeat in something, it's one thing. But when you have people standing over you, mocking you for failing, it makes the wounds doubly painful. It wasn't just that David had failed, he didn't. But if he did, they're standing by rejoicing over the fact that David is going to be tried in this court. If David is found guilty of breaking the treaty, it's his head on the chopping block. When we experience this kind of oppression against, from our enemies, we must cry out to our great advocate. 1 John 2 and verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Christ is our defense attorney. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Now then, here are several takeaways from our study, and then we're through. Number one, if you haven't picked up on it already, if you're going to use imprecatory psalms in your own prayer life and devotion, be very careful that you are not personally vindictive. Do not be personally vindictive in using the psalms of imprecation. They're not your enemies. We're to be praying against God's enemies. David was the chief justice of Israel, not merely a common citizen. Secondly, make sure you pray for justice to be shown in the lives of other people who are suffering injustice. Praying for saints overseas who are paying a cost to follow Christ in Iran, Saudi Arabia, 
in North Korea, parts where it's illegal, places in the world where it is illegal to do what we're doing here this morning. In Iran, if we were having this meeting, it's possible that every one of us could be killed on site for worshiping Christ. It's an Islamic, Shiite-controlled Muslim country. Thirdly, do not, and listen, never take matters into your own hands. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 20, uh, 35, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, thus saith the Lord. It's not your job to get vengeance on people who have wronged you. That's God's job. God will handle it. You can trust Him. You can trust Him. Fourthly, remember that even the vilest sinners are not beyond God's grace. If the early church would have prayed in precatory psalms for God to remove Saul of Tarsus, guess what? We wouldn't have had half of the New Testament. We wouldn't have had the greatest missionary that the world has known. Did you know that? Saul of Tarsus was a persecutor and a murderer of Christians before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Don't ever forget that no one is beyond God's grace. Verse, uh, fifthly, we can always apply prayers of imprecation against Satan and his dark emissaries. If you want to pray curses against your enemy, pray against the devil. Absolutely. Every time. Matter of fact, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, he is a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. That's exactly the image that David says his enemies were like in Psalm 35. Now listen to this. <clears throat> This is the nail in the coffin for those that believe that the imprecatory psalms are not inspired of God. Jesus Christ quotes Psalm 35 and verse 17 and John 15 and verse 25. Jesus quotes directly from an imprecatory psalm. And if they're not inspired, then why does Jesus quote from them? You understand that? These psalms are valid. These psalms are powerful, and we are to use these psalms in our own prayer life and our own relationship with God. Let me quote John 15 and verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. When Christ says they hated me without a cause, he's quoting directly from the 35th psalm. Now listen, I want to, I want to unpack uh, Jesus' quoting of Psalm 35 for us. Can I do that? Listen. In John 15, Jesus warns his disciples that the world will hate them just like it hated him. And that the hatred they would experience as followers of Jesus would be without a cause. Just like David experienced in Psalm 35. However, when David prayed for deliverance from his hateful enemies, Jesus succumbs to the hateful enemies on the cross. David prays that God would save him from his enemies. Jesus doesn't pray that. Jesus allows his enemies to crucify him. David curses those who hated him and wrongfully accused him because they violated a treaty, because he violated a treaty. Listen to this. Christ comes bearing the curse of sin for us 
on his own self. And Christ writes a brand new treaty, a new testament in his own blood. Think about that. Think about how Christ uses Psalm 35 to speak of greater realities in the New Testament. Isn't that wonderful? Where David prays that God would consume his enemies, Christ is consumed by his enemies. Where David is persecuted for violating a a treaty, Christ is persecuted and he writes a brand new treaty, allowing all that will confess him as Lord to enter into the kingdom of God. Our Father, we do thank you, Lord, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And Psalm 35 is all Scripture this morning. Lord, I pray that we would harvest, that you would harvest the truths of Psalm 35 and plant them into our hearts. Lord, I thank you for these who have come out to hear this morning. In Christ's name, amen.